Well, let's, uh, let's pass out the scriptures. If you have a Bible, open up to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Talk about a challenge for the new year is to hold everyone's attention while going through the book of Romans. Although it's a very exciting book in many regards, it's, it's, a, it's legal writing is difficult to, uh, to work through in some regards. But uh, before we uh, stand for the reading of the word of the Lord, uh, a little bit of, I guess, New Year catch up. Uh, I had the privilege to uh, go last week, uh, Monday, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday to uh, Texas and we had a chance to, a bunch of ministers gathered to pray over a presidential candidate and his wife and his two kids. Um, they'd asked for prayer, and so we came out to do that. And uh, I, I felt like a, a fly on the wall. I didn't know what the event really was. I'd just been invited, and I got out there, and there was um, just a cadre of uh, James Robinson. I don't know if you know who he is. He was one of the ministers there. Uh, folks who theologically I don't necessarily agree with were there. Um, we had folks like uh, John Hagee and Kenneth Copeland. I'm walking around just, and Gloria Copeland came up to me because uh, there was a woman there that had helped host it. She was, um, th- she's very wealthy. And so she was taking pictures with me with Dr. James Dobson. And I went up to another gal named Lila Rose who did the undercover work for the Planned Parenthood videos. I got a picture with her. And um, Gloria Copeland saw this woman photographing me. And she was very impressed with me. So, so Gloria Copeland came up to me and she said, um, it's so good to see you again. And I said, well, I, I don't know that we've ever met. And she said, uh, aren't you Dan Wilkes? And that's your wife over there. I said, no. And she goes, oh. <laughs> that was it. That went off like a lead balloon right there. So I'm in the book of who's he. You've heard of the book of who's who. So, uh, but it was... It was uh, I noticed that they they had a series of pastors pray over the candidate, and um, and I'd shared this on New Year's Eve. Uh, each of the pastors began to pray, and and names that you've you've heard all through Christendom, and each one prayed, and there was just there just wasn't anything there, and I was burdened in my heart, wondering, Lord, why am I here? And um, the 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 two people that prayed, where you sensed God, the Holy Spirit bless the evening and, and just uh, his presence, you know, where, where you just knew God was there. It was a man by the name of Dave Reaver. I had um, I'd been a Christian maybe two weeks when I'd first become a Christian years ago, and I'd picked up his book, and he was a Vietnam veteran who's, who'd been blown up back when there weren't prosthetics and there weren't, you know, you, you came back from Vietnam, first of all, the, the community, the society didn't want anything to do with you. Secondly, as your face was marred, you were considered a freak, and his face was melted and burned, his teeth were shattered from the explosion, his hands were crippled, he wore a wig, his eyes were dis, you know, deformed from the explosion. And this is a man that, laying in a hospital bed, uh, in Walter Reed Hospital, thinking, why even bother to live, came to Christ, and um, has been just a a defender of the faith, and when he prayed, um, and he prayed for our veterans and and for just the nation, you just you, you sensed a man that had really put a put his whole life to, towards that. And um, and then the other one who prayed was a pastor of a church of maybe maybe 150 people in a West Texas town. 
and nobody knew of him. And when he prayed, the whole room was moved. And yet, <clears throat> it was almost like the Lord was saying, no flesh will be glorified in my presence. I don't care who you are. The, the, the smaller you are, the more important you are. And that's not to diminish the work that, that these men and women have done, but it's the idea that what God is doing, uh, he's the only one who's going to receive the glory. Now, the kingdom of God is not coming on Air Force One. And really what the Lord showed me is, if this, if this couple truly seeks God's blessing, they were there for the reason of, of prayer as opposed to receiving connections within Christendom to get votes. God is, God, I believe, is at a place where if we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, he'll lift us up. And I don't care what candidate it is, it is what party it is, we're at a stage where the only hope for America is the Lord. And, um, and, and to humble ourselves in his presence and to cry out to him. And, and I, I think it's fitting because as we get into Romans chapter 3, I looked around the room and, um, and it, it was the who's who of Christendom. And yet, um, even seeing the who's who of Christendom and then, then the who's he of Christendom, um, there, was, there was this idea that I could find dirt on anyone in that room if he gave me a couple of minutes. James Robinson, pastor of massive ministry, has committed adultery. John Hagee um, married his secretary, committed adultery on his wife. People don't realize that. I remember the time he was scourging um, Newt Gingrich as he was sitting next to his second wife, Callista, because um, Newt Gingrich, as you know, had committed adultery and married Callista's current wife. And John Hagee is speaking derogatorily from the pulpit as there's, I just thought how, and, and here's a man who had done the exact same thing. And I was burdened by this, this, this idea of a self-righteousness that, that somehow, I have to tell you, the people behind the wooden box, the Bible says God takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wisdom of the wise. He takes the weak things of the world. The ministers are the weakest of you all. That's why he puts them here. They have to live in a fishbowl. Their lives have to be wholly examined. And, 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 and this, is, this is one of those areas where the only thing good in Christendom, the only thing good in this room is Jesus Christ. There are none righteous. No, not one. And, and the thing that keeps us from the Lord is our self-righteousness. The thing that keeps us from his blessing is our self-righteousness. That somehow you, we're, we're a gift to God. That, that somehow he got a bargain with me. My eloquence and my ability to make things happen is, you know, I, it's just absolutely, I'm sure God is so fully impressed. <laughs> but but the, the, the reality is, all that is good is Jesus. And, and, the, and the more we lift him up, the better off we all are. And so I pray 2016, that would be the case in all of our homes and all of our families. I was deeply humbled while I was there. I thought, Lord, what do you want to do? And, and, and what do you want me to do? And the Lord just impressed upon my heart, seek me. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. Everything else you don't have to worry about, I'll take care of that. Seek me first. I, I would implore all of you in 2016, bring the word of God into your home and seek him. Seek him personally and through your family. Fathers, Show your children how important the word of God is to you by example. 
And then lead them in the reading of the word. Bathe your wife in the water. The word wives. Even if your husbands don't do that, you do that. We're accountable to the Lord. Somebody said, what do I need to do? Uh, I'm, I'm willing. And I said, well, the flesh is willing, but the spirit is weak. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. See, this is a problem. We don't do a lot of music and folks forget that church starts at eight. Sorry, nine. Sorry. It's, I can pick on them. I know them. So, so the idea is bring the word of God into your homes, but more importantly, into your own life. And this will be a year that will be unbelievable as you press into God. I assure you. Amen? All right, so uh, Romans chapter 3 this morning, um, but before I have you stand for that, let me read to you a passage of scripture while you're seated. And you can make note of it. You don't necessarily have to turn there. You can make note of it. It'll be um, an illustration for our passage this morning. It's found in Luke 18, and it reads, and this is a, a parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, within himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes to, of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I think a tax collector back then is the same as a tax collector today. Yes? Nobody wants to reveal the fact that they are a tax collector. And the Pharisee is a religious man. The Pharisee would be a minister. The Pharisee would be... um, a lawyer, a Pharisee would be someone who would stand for, for justice. And yet you see one declaring himself to be righteous and another recognizing his brokenness before God. And God says, it's the tax collector who is righteous, not the other way around. So let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Romans chapter 3. Now, it's going to seem a little strange as we read through it, as though Paul is asking a series of questions, and these questions are all questions that have arisen out of uh, Romans 1 and 2, when he took time to reveal to everybody that they're in the same boat. Whether you're a pagan, meaning you have no relationship with God, or you're a churchgoer, you're all in the same boat. And, and he lays this out, and it, 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 it stumbles the Jews that are receiving this word from Phoebe in Rome as they're reading this epistle. They're stunned, like, wait a minute, I go to church twice a week, my, my parents paid for these, these seats, I, I'm the one who put in the stained glass windows, I am a churchgoer, my family's been five generations in this church. Being in a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being born in a garage makes you a car, right? And so here we're going to see in Romans that Paul is going to address the questions that are going to arise out of the confusion that many of these religious have been struggling with. Verse 1, Paul writes, What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, 
Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man, certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God is increased through my lie to his glory, why am, I, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported, as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. What then, Paul asks, are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. We're all under the law. We're all under sin. We've all failed. Verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. Chapters 1 and 2 brought us to the conclusion of chapter 3, verse 10. There is none righteous. No, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They together have become unprofitable. There's none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb with their tongues that they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth, I had to say that very carefully whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery in their ways. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be silenced or stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. That's bad news. Bad news is it's really bad. And we're all under that. But let's get to the good news. Therefore, verse 20, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But, and may I just say that this is the most exciting word to me in the entirety of the scriptures. But. And I love the placement of it. Bad news, here comes the good news. But the righteousness of God is apart from the law, is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just in the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So that's where our salvation comes from. Sounds confusing. We'll get through it. You'll be blessed. Father, we thank you for your word. I ask that you'd guide and direct us. I pray that you'd strengthen us. I pray, Lord, that you would give us insight and Lord, direction as to what it is you have for us in relation to this text. Lord, there's so much to be understood and in many ways so confusing, but I ask that you would bring clarity. And Holy Spirit, lead us into all truth, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, have a seat. So Paul deals with chapters 1 and 2, and much like many of you in the room, you're left with questions. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm a churchgoer. And why does that make me better than, you know, the, the pagan heathen that has no desire or anything? I mean, you know, the, the, the Bakar Haram uh, who, was, 
who is uh, raping the children and, and, and kidnapping them and the ISIS members who are beheading, you're telling me that we're all in the same boat, that, that we all fall into the same category. I, I, I'm, I'm a moral man. I'm a moral woman. And you're telling me that I am under the exact same condition as, as some of the people that are just vile? Yes. Yes. It leaves us with a, a myriad of questions. A number of them Paul addresses just you know, preempting their thoughts. And, and they probably wouldn't be the same questions we would ask today, but Paul is an evangelist. And um, verse one, Paul, are you saying that there is no advantage to biblical religion? Is there no advantage to being, you know, a, a part of, of, of biblical religion? Paul, no, I'm not saying that. I just wrote down some of what his ideas would be. Verse two, he says, there's great value in having knowledge of the words of God. People speak about deists and how deism doesn't save. No, it doesn't, but it preserves. The word of God preserves. It, it's nice to have a culture that has the word of God, right? Hello? Yes. So it preserves. You're right, it doesn't save. The, the, the structure of our nation, uh, the way it was founded, it doesn't save, but it preserves. It preserves freedoms. It was designed with the idea that people would have access to the gospel, that we'd have access to those things that do save. So it preserves, it doesn't save. Another question is what we see here in verse three. Uh, yes, but those words have failed, haven't they? Because so many haven't believed the gospel of righteousness revealed in God's son, Jesus. What has happened to the promises? This idea that, you know, Paul's asking these questions and I love kind of this, this idea of an answer despite the people's failure to believe because the word has been preached, people have failed to believe. God's promises to save it seems to have hindered the advancement. Our faithfulness only reveals how committed to his truth uh, we think we are. All of these questions Paul writes are similar to what we're dealing in the church today. We're struggling for identity in the church. We think it's all about the gospel. We don't understand about preservation. We don't understand about government. We don't understand about law. We don't understand about all the balance of these things. If unrighteousness is necessary for God's righteousness to be seen, how is it fair for him to judge us? I mean, that's a question Paul's kind of asking is, is I mean, if, if where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. And if I'm an object of his wrath, well, why would you judge me if, if I'm, I don't get this? And on that basis, God would not judge anyone in the world. But what, what God points out, what Paul points out is that God is just. He's righteous in the way that he operates. You know, I was reading this morning in my devotions. I'm going through the one-year Bible, beginning again. Here we are in Genesis, and I read about Enoch. He walked with God. And then what did it say about Noah? It said he was a just man. Yes? He did righteousness. He practiced righteousness. Think about justice. Justice. And then you're, you're going to see the flood come as we're reading, as I'm reading through the one-year Bible. The flood's going to come, and the reason why is because there's chaos on the land. There's chaos on the land. And through the Noahic covenant will come government. Interestingly enough, God will ordain government. And it's fascinating. What was so special about Noah? He was just. Just. What is just? Justice. We go to a court for that. Who establishes the court? The people. In what way? Through government, through society, through the establishment of what is right and what is wrong. Foundational principles that we all agree with. Foundational principles that, that even if we don't agree with, 
are absolute because we've recognized the God of justice, the supreme lawgiver. If we remove the supreme lawgiver from a culture, can our laws be just? Can our government be just? He's saying, well, no government is just. Yes, and neither is any man or woman in the room. But does that deny the fact that God is? For all have sinned and fallen short, have missed justice. But we still strive for the ideal. It doesn't make you a hypocrite. It just makes you standing a standard that you miss. A hypocrite is someone who knows the truth and deliberately leads people astray for the sake of personal gain. A hypocrite isn't someone who sets a standard and fails to achieve it. That's a standard that all society should seek after. But without absolutes, we're all going to struggle. And this is the supreme lawgiver. This is what Paul is laying out. He's speaking, he's speaking to a culture of Jews that understand law. They understand that law is to govern man. They understand that law doesn't save. Some of them think it does. Some of us think that if we just had more laws, we'd be better off. Right? God gave us 10 commandments. Look what we've just done with the IRS tax code alone. And, 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 and the more laws you make, the bigger the prisons you have to have. Because there's many things the law can do, but there's much that the law cannot do. See, it's good news and it's bad news. The passage of scripture that we've read this morning is really, really bad news, but it ends with good news. I love the idea of good news, bad news. I remember the one joke I was told, it may not be appropriate, but I'm gonna do it anyways. <laughs> <laughs> the man who was told he had a terminal illness. And, and he said, uh, went to the doctor for a checkup. Doctor said, I have good news and bad news. He says, well, what's, what's the bad news? It's terminal. You've got six months to live. He says, well, what's the good news? You could move to Bakersfield. <laughs> he said, why would that be good news? Because that would be the longest six months of your life. <laughs> we see in this passage of scripture what the law cannot do what the law cannot do I wrote a few of them down the law can only re- reveal sin but it's powerless to save us from sin the law can reveal sin but it's powerless to save us from sin the law doesn't make people righteous. It just makes you realize you break it. The law can show us our weakness, but it can't provide us strength. It can condemn us, but it can't justify us. The law commands, but it doesn't enable us. Right? The law slays, but only grace can cause us to come alive. The law is outward, grace is inward. You see, the problem with all religions, save but for Christianity, is that they maintain that you can't get anything without doing something. Christianity is different. You don't do it, God already did it. And when you receive it, he empowers you to accomplish it. You don't observe the law to be saved. You observe the law because you are saved. And he gives you the power to observe the law having been saved. Total difference than the world has ever known. But what we all have to come to realization is that we're under sin and we need to be saved. The difficulty is this legal term, under sin. 
we're unrighteous. To be under sin is to have a passport basically saying that, that we're a sinner. It's a legal term. It's a spiritual passport that shows our legal citizenship in a world of sinners. It's either stamped under sin or under grace. And Paul's outstanding statement is that Jews and Gentiles, religious and unreligious, are all under sin. We're all under the law and we've all failed to keep the law. Can we agree on that? And whatever law you've made, even if you're from another country, you've still failed to keep it. The person who lives a life of tremendous immorality and debauchery, who fits every description of what we read in Romans 1, verses 18 through 32. And we remember going through that. And we all kind of took time to examine sexual sin and failure in our culture. And we kind of even saw ourselves in that in a lot of ways. Hmm? Hmm. (laughs) That person who is conscious and moral... And that person who is immoral and, and, and living a life of debauchery, the reality is alike. They're all in the citizenry of sin. We're all stamped with that passport. It does, this doesn't mean that every person is as sinful as every other person. It means that our legal condition is the same. We're all guilty. We're all lost. And there are no degrees of lostness. Do you understand that? We're all lost. There's no degrees of lostness. There's degrees of morality. Some are more moral than others, but we're still all lost. We're all understanding we're all guilty. We're all guilty. Then Paul, as we've read in Romans chapter 3, he goes through a whole list and, and basically seven ideas of how sin has its effect on us. Not only do we need to accept that we're sinners, we also need to begin to, in a sense, grasp the problem of the reality of our sinfulness. We have to see what sin does to us. That's what Paul wants to point out. And I know this is something that we're so excited about starting our new year, taking a look at what losers we are, but (laughs) I did say it's good news coming. I'm going with the bad news first, and then we'll go to Bakersfield. (laughs) Paul, Paul provides a a layer of evidence that we can see the stark terms of our sinfulness. If you notice in verse 10 of our, of our text, Paul says, uh, there is none righteous, no, not one. Um, we're guilty, we're condemned. And, and we see in verse 11 how this manifests itself. First of all, um, there's no one who understands. That means that our minds are, are sinful. They're guilty. Um, Look at the, the second portion. There are none who seek after God. Our motives are even bad. Not only are our minds bad, our motives are bad. Look at verse 12. They've all turned aside. No one seeks God. They've all turned away. Verse 12, which means it's our will. Not only are our minds corrupted, not only are our motives corrupted, but our will is contrary to what God wants. Our will is contrary to what God wants. Verse 13, their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they've practiced deceit and the poison of vipers or asps. <sighs> I should have used a different translation there. Is under their lips, this venom. Think of the way we speak to one another. Not only are our minds corrupted, not only are our motives corrupted, not only are our wills corrupted, but our tongues are vile. The things we say about other people. We say about other people especially in times of frustration we have no idea what we're speaking of we come to conclusions that were probably inaccurate and we immediately tack their character 
And what is the difference? It's gossip. It's what you say behind someone's back that you wouldn't say to their face. And, and flattery is what you'd say to their face, but you wouldn't say behind their back. Both are evil and vile. And why do we do that? For our own selfish gains, our own purposes. But Paul's laying out the, the depravity of our sin. Our relationships, if you notice, are also affected because verse 15, we are swift to shed blood. We're, 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 we're swift to shed blood. Look at verse 18. There is no fear of God in their eyes. Not only our relationships with each other, we're, we're willing to throw each other under the bus if it means saving ourselves. And in relation to, to God, we have no fear of God. I mean, really. Oh, I fear the Lord. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We can't even get our sorry selves out of bed to read the Bible. The living, breathing word of God that holds the heavens together. All things are held together by the word of his power. We don't even want to read it. The only time we pray is when something goes wrong. We, we watch the sun rise and the sun set. Seasons come, seasons go. Food abundant on our table. Lungs moving, heart beating. And we, we just, God who? And then something goes wrong and we are, look, uh, where is he? And, and our businesses, what, what, kind of, what kind of way do we acknowledge God? Insurance companies. Everything's covered except for acts of God. What do we attribute as acts of God? Hurricanes, earthquakes, flooding, pestilence, war. That's the wages of sin manifesting itself in the... Second law of thermodynamics, everything breaking down and reducing to its least common denominator. And that's acts of man. Acts of God is, he's holding it together by the word of his power. We should be on our faces going, thank you, thank you, thank you. Mm, Apparently not. It's a depressing list to say the least. And we're all in it. But it claims two uh, particularly surprising conclusions, striking conclusions. Paul says, no one seeks God. No one seeks God. And no one does good. Those are some, those are some huge conclusions. No one seeks God and no one does good. No one fears God. We just read that. There is no fear of God before their eyes. No one fears God. You see, the solution, the antidote to this venom, to this bad news, to the hope of 2016 and a transformation of our country, it's really simple. Fear God. That doesn't mean be scared to death of him. That means respect him. That means honor him. That means put him first. That means give him preferential treatment. That means make him a part of... Everything you do, don't take a step without checking with him first. That means raise your family with what he desires. It's like a, a, a child that, that has a healthy respect for their parents. My mom and dad wouldn't want me to do that. My heavenly father wouldn't want me to do that. The antidote to the troubles of our world is to fear God. Romans 3.11, no one seeks God. 
You see, sin is characterized by running from God. We run from him. And, and here's what happens. And this is, this is what our life previous to today has been all about. Sin makes you forget God. Our culture's forgotten him. It makes God unreal to us. He's the butt of every joke. He's, he's the ridicule of every sitcom and every movie. He's, he's the joke in politics. And anyone who fears God and wants to stand for him becomes the butt of that joke. And the more that we run from God, the more that we don't seek the Lord, the more we forget him. And then we don't pray at the dinner table because it's a waste of time. He's not there. I just saw it on the TV. Carl Sagan says all we have is matter. There's nothing else. We let our children be educated in this and we've forgotten him. Our government no longer acknowledges him. Yes, we spend money with coins that have the depiction in God we trust, but it's just become a statement that nobody cares about. Christians don't even seek him. Seek the Lord with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbors yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law of the prophets. We don't even do the first, let alone the second. And what happens is our culture, as we move away, and we've forgotten him. He's still there. We've just forgotten to include him. We don't think it's important anymore to put our, our right hand up and no longer put our hand on a Bible. We no longer think it important nor to defend it nor fight for it. We no longer think it important for our children to pray. We've forgotten him. The opposite of fearing God is to run from him. Our passion is to come before him and to say, Lord, you're everything to me. You see, there's two ways to live life. There's two ways to live life. And this is a good thing to consider as we begin a new year. Two ways to live life. Forgetting God's reality or being aware of his reality. His reality is he's God and we are not. And he calls the shots. And we're to do his bidding. And we're to fear him and honor him. Or live our own reality. Forget him. Run from him. Their throats are open, open graves in verse 13. It's only if the glory and love of God are unreal to you that you can lie or harm with your tongue or that you can fight with people and be willful in your heart to speak ill of them and to do evil things. We are becoming vicious. Our throats are open graves. Our mouths are just awful. And yet, we come to the conclusion, as I emphasized in the reading of verse 19, that every mouth may be stopped. Enough is enough. And all the world become guilty before God. Couldn't we all just for a minute just stop and agree that it's awful? 
and we're reaping what we've sown and we've been forgetting about him for far too long and he isn't preeminent in our lives and we acknowledge we don't fear him, we don't seek him, couldn't we just share that conclusion? Because Paul's taken the the beginning of the book all the way to verse 19 and he says, listen, I don't care who you are. We're all without excuse. You know what happens when you're busted? Now, there's been a couple of times in my life I've been just stone cold busted. I mean, caught so bad that I just, I just felt like an idiot. And here I am confessing. All of you going, well, I've never experienced anything like that in my life. (laughs) Go ahead and reveal your unrighteousness, Pastor. (laughs) I remember I lied to my dad. And he stood to defend me. He stood fervently to defend his son. The whole time I was lying. You know how humiliating that is? I couldn't live with myself. My dad stood. When everyone else just, the evidence was overwhelming. He's my boy. And then I had to turn to him and just say, Dad, I'm sorry. I lied. I just stood there. I couldn't speak. I had nothing to say. You realize that's all of us? Big bright light shines into the crevices of our souls. And there it is. The filth. And you're standing before the one who you've hurt. You don't even know what to say. Every mouth is stopped. And we're guilty before God. You see, a silent mouth is a spiritual condition. It's a good thing. I remember my dad saying, son, thank you for telling me the truth. It was comforting. And we had a long talk about character. You see, a silent mouth is a condition of a person who knows they cannot save themselves. Dad, can't you see it? Everyone else does. All the evidence points to me. But you said you didn't do it. I did it. I'm guilty. I did it. Well, son, we can always deal with the truth. The truth is a good place to start. A wise man 
who wasn't even a Christian. Gave me the clearest illustration of a text that most would find confusing. Can't we agree our mouths are stopped? Can't we stand before our Father when the evidence is overwhelming? Enough with the games. I don't care how you present yourself and how tough you look in the new suit you got for the jury. We want to come to the truth because until we get to the truth, our spiritual condition is lost. You see, a silent mouth is a spiritual condition. It's a condition of the person who knows that they cannot save themselves. But you say, wait a minute. This is a bad news, good news. When do we get to Bakersfield deal? I want to read this to you. And I read it New Year's Eve and I was so blessed by it. I pray it blesses you. They're not my words. These are John Gerstner. Ready? The way to God is wide open. There's nothing standing between the sinner and his God. He has immediate and unimpeded access to the Savior. It's Communion Sunday. Immediate and unimpeded access to the Savior. There is nothing to hinder. No sin can hold you back because God offers justification to the ungodly. Nothing now stands between the sinner and God but the sinner's good works. Nothing can keep him from Christ but his delusion that he has good works of his own that can satisfy God. All they need is need. All they must have is nothing. But alas, sinners cannot part with their quote-unquote virtues. They have none that are not imaginary, but they are real to them, and so grace becomes unreal. The real grace of God they spurn in order to hold on to the illusory virtues of their own. Their eyes fixed on a mirage. They will not drink real water, and they will die of thirst with water all about them. In the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. And all we need do is come to Christ with empty hands and receive his righteousness. What keeps people from salvation is not so much their sins, but their good works. If we come to God telling him that we are good, offering him the works of our hands as our righteousness, we cannot take the righteousness he gives by grace. We need to give up our goodness and repent of our religiosity as well as our rebellion. We need to come with empty hands and silent mouths and receive. Good news. Verse 22, the righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. 
to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of our mouths are silenced. And we're justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, that's the truth. That's the truth. And the truth is always a good place to start. There's a lot of bad news in our world today. It seems like it keeps getting worse and worse. But it all changes today. Fear God. Let your mouth be silenced and your empty hands reach out for a salvation you could never achieve nor never earn that is freely given by grace through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. Bad news is our mouths are all silenced. I'll never forget that day before my father. I'll never forget it. Even to this day when I hold his hand and he's not even there mentally because of Alzheimer's. I can go back to that place. Son, the truth is a good place to start. And the beauty of it is, if your mouth is silenced like mine was before my father, and we can all agree that we're guilty. Salvation by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Jesus Christ has justified the unrighteous by the propitiation. He's wiped the slate clean. He's put his righteousness on your account. He could never earn it, and he gives it. And what's fascinating is, yes, there's moral men and women, but now the motivation is not to impress people, but to honor God. We don't do good things to receive salvation. Because we've received salvation, we now, by God's ability, have the ability to do good things. He changes us from the inside out. But only those whose mouths are silenced and whose hands are empty who can agree that they, like me, and everyone else on this earth are unrighteous, can come and find help in your time of need. A salvation so great, it changed the world. And it's done it for thousands of years and can do it again. The hope for 2016, fear God. And with your silent mouth, and your empty hands come and receive the salvation of the Lord. 
in the forgiveness of your sins and the righteousness of God. Otherwise, you live your illusion and you drink from the dead water of your mirage and you impress people with your flattery and you navigate with your gossip and you play your games as the clock ticks and your body fails. You don't fool anyone. There are none righteous. Come and receive. This is the good news. Eternal life for all who would believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Lord, we're not overcome by bad news. We're all under the law of sin and death, but we've overcome that by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. We agree that we need you. And we come with empty hands and humbled hearts to receive you. We walk away from the illusion of our self-righteousness, the mirage of the empty water of our lies, and come in agreement that it's Christ and only Christ who saves. Lord Jesus, you are our salvation. You are our God. We love you, we praise you. And by your spirit, give us the ability to fear you and honor you and serve you. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the ushers will dismiss you by row and you just come down, they'll give you the cup. You can grab the cracker. There's gluten-free here for those of you who need it. And you go back to your seat to the center aisle. They're gonna lead us in worship. Take communion at your leisure. We usually take the cracker first before the cup because the body had to be broken before the blood could be shed. That's just something we do. May the Lord bless you and just realize that God has forgiven you and cast your sins as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more and you're a new creature in Christ. And this will be a wonderful year as we fear him together. Amen.